0: This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend Sean Lake co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year, My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. And mental health advocate, Dean Stott. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dean Stott. Enjoy. Well, Dean, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast
1: today. No, thank you for having me. appreciate it.
0: So my opening question is always, where on planet Earth are we finding you? You're actually in somewhere where I used to live. So where is that?
1: Uh, I'm now in Orange County in Southern California.
0: Yeah, Beautiful. Uh, beautiful. Absolutely. So, obviously, from your accent, that is not where you were born and bred. So, I love to start at the very beginning. So, tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings.
1: Yeah. So, I was born uh, in Swindon. I was actually born in a hospital called RAF Rawten, just outside of uh, Swindon. And the reason I was born there, my father was in the military, and he was away at the time. So, my mother got moved to that that hospital. Um, I'm one of three. I have two younger sisters and, um, yeah, gave them hell growing up. And as I touched on, my dad was in the military. So we sort of were immersed in that military environment. Every, you know, didn't spend long in Swindon at all. Every three years, we'd find ourselves packing our bags again, packing a house, just just about made some uh, lifelong friends and then we had to move on again. So that was sort of my life until I was about, um, I'd say, 13 um, my dad then retired from the military, and I finished. Um, he finished an older shot, and we moved to a little village in Surrey um, called Elstead. So to- totally night and day from what I was used to in the military. A uh, very tranquil um, country, country little village, and uh, I finished my school in there. Um, so for me, I had a little bit of stability um, towards the latter ends of my schooling years.
0: Well, you were lucky that you moved out of Swindon because I lived there for a bit. <laughs> yeah it's
1: uh the only advantage of swindon is two hours from everywhere
0: that's it yes yeah I, I grew up in bath just outside bath so i went to college in swindon for a year and you know it, there was some great things about it but yeah it, it's not my favorite place in the uk
1: no no, no, no no i agree
0: especially the magic roundabout have you ever seen that <laughs> um all right yeah, sure. so- so, before we even get to kind of the moving um, forward, one thing that's always interesting is people that have had kind of like that gypsy upbringing, that moving from place to place to place. When you look back now through the lens that you have, what were some of the pros of that upbringing? And then what were some of the cons when you, when you reflect? Um,
1: some of the pros of that upbringing was as... Um, seeing new things, you know, not being, not being used to your, your, your environment. You know, everywhere we moved. So it wasn't just in the UK. We moved abroad as well. So we're seeing other cultures, other, other ways of people living, you know. So that really opened my eyes and sort of grounded that I wanted to be a pilgrim or a nomad. You know, I was sort of used to that sort of moving around. As we just touched on, I'm now living in California. Um, and I think that's, that stems from being a young child. It's very easy for me to to change the environment and move my family. So that was one of the pros of that. Um, so, um, and one of the cons really was probably the opposite, is, is by the time you really started getting some friendships, you found yourself uh, moving on. So um, that was probably the only con. I think there was more pros and cons. Um, so obviously, we grew up in a time before social media. Nowadays, you know, my children, they're still in contact with their friends back in Scotland. You know, back then, when you moved, you moved. There was no way of, you know, staying in communication with those people. But they're more pros in the fact that I was more cultured and um, more open to to traveling.
0: Well, speaking of traveling, that's something when I look back, and I, I traveled a little bit when I was younger. It was more kind of, you know, teens and 20s. I really saw the world. But it's amazing the education you get when you travel and i don't know if you had the same when you were young but i remember the the kind of british mentality was was a little bit anti-french when i was younger um and then you go to france and you're like wow these are amazing people you know a lot of the things that i was told was complete bullshit um (laughs) did some of that um that traveling that you did when you were younger kind of were you were you struck by maybe some of the ignorance of people that you were around that hadn't traveled when you'd actually started to see the world with your own eyes
1: yeah, because normally when you know, growing up in the in the eighties, the only people that travelled on the plane were the, were the filthy rich. Um, so you'd always hear stories about Spain and France. But actually, yeah, when you were there, it was it was night and day from what you were told back home. Um, and, and for me, you know, nowadays the world seems so much smaller, so much smaller. Whereas back in the eighties, it was such a big place. Um, you know, used to be excited that they sold the same sort of brand of. butter that we had back in the UK Um, but actually um, I learned more as an adult there was more surprises as an adult um, especially going away with the military and then when I worked in the private security sector because there still was that ignorance back home about these people and their cultures and then when you're there you're like, actually it's not it's not what you think it is it's absolutely night and day and I've been fortunate to almost all over the world i've i i do not mean as many places i i haven't been um, but you know the world has its perception for example on the middle east that everyone there is a terrorist everyone there is bad and actually when you go there they're probably some of the most hospitable people you'll ever meet um and so yeah i'm still being pleasantly surprised when i when i travel um but again, I still think there is an ignorance back home of what people's perception is because they've not been there themselves.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on that very topic as we kind of get into your military side. Um, with not only the level that you reached in the SBS, but also some of your physical feats after, um, you know, you would assume there was a high level of athleticism all the way through. Was that the case when you were younger? Were you playing sports at a high level or was it one of those things that you grew
1: into? My my father was, in terms of my father being in the military, my father's career was very much sports-oriented. He was the army football manager. And when I say football, that's soccer for the Americans. Uh, the army uh, football manager, player, and coach. So, you know, what we would call a tracksuit soldier. Uh, I very rarely saw him in, in uniform or green kit, um, because that's what that is his role. He would just play sports for, um day in, day out. So naturally, I had that competitive streak in me uh, from my father. I saw him doing that. Um, yes, I, I enjoyed playing sport. I, I, I wasn't that, as big as I am now. I was a bit more of a, um, a dangly child, um, but fast. But I still had that, that drive and that competitiveness in me um, from my father. You know, In our household, even, even Christmas Day, the, the ball game on Christmas Day would turn into a competition.
0: Now, as far as career aspirations, I know that you spoke about a profession that I'm very passionate about. So what was your initial career goal?
1: So my initial career goal, I always wanted to be a fireman, you know, from a young boy. It's always what I wanted to do. And when I left, when I finished school at the age of 16, I was too young to be a fireman. Um, so I then went on to, to go to college. But uh, my father was very strict. In, in, my, in my schooling. You know, I wasn't allowed to go outside and play with my friends until I'd done all my homework, uh, which I think, you know, looking back, I can see why he did that. Otherwise, I would have got no homework or no, no sort of uh, education. But when you go to college, uh, things change, you know. You, go, you have these lessons. I mean, you have these free periods and free periods turn into longer free periods. I mean, realise, actually, you're not even going to college. Um, so I, I went down to Nuki um, on a holiday And which was supposed to be for two weeks, and turned into a (laughs) six-month vacation, and so sort of wasted my education. When I left school in '93, there was a big recession there, and there there was a lot of unemployment. So, just for one, I think for Surrey Fire Brigade, just for one applicant for one uh, vacancy, there was two thousand plus applications. So, a young seventeen-year-old boy, I wasn't gonna. Get that. So I needed to do something in the meantime. So my father, uh, you know, came and found me down in Nuki working in a surf shop and sort of really highlighted that wasted my life. And so I said, Well, I'll join the military. And I, I just thought, well, if I joined the military for three years, you know, at least get a trade, get some discipline, then it would help towards my CV for when I joined the fire brigade. And that's what I did. I, I joined the military and uh, followed my father's footsteps.
0: Beautiful. And obviously it took you in a completely different direction, which is amazing. Now, before we kind of get to that journey, I know you've been very passionate about mental health, um, something that I have as well. And my understanding of it has really evolved since I started doing this, this project and hearing so many people's stories. And one of the real kind of elephants in the room is childhood trauma. And a lot of us don't realize how much we bring into the profession. When you look back at your formative years, were there any elements of that in your own upbringing?
1: For me, um, I probably my, my, my parents split up when I was younger. My father and my mother split up when I was eight, just for my eighth birthday, actually. Um, it, was, it was domestic violence. And I remember my mother grabbing me and my sisters and sort of sneaking us out of the house. And we moved up to, my mother was from Manchester, and we got a train. Up there, and ended up living in a homeless home in Moss Side, which was the at the time. If anyone doesn't know Moss Side in UK, was like the roughest ghetto in 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 the UK at the time. Which was fine, you know that that made me a bit tougher. Um, but I we my father then went for custody, and we had a, uh, we went to the court case, and the judge said that he didn't want to split up the siblings. You know, he said, I'm not splitting these siblings up. They make a decision who who they live with. During this two-year period as well, from my mother's leaving my my father, until now the court case, my father would travel every other weekend uh, up to visit us and take us away. And and I was quite – I I had a strong relationship with my father. So being the eldest of the siblings, the judge said, well – they make the decision and being the eldest at the age of 10, I had to make a decision whether to live with my father or my mother, but that would be a decision for my sisters as well. So I did, I, I chose my father and I can always remember the day that my mother had to drop us off and um, to my father, I mean, that's it. She, she lost custody of the kids. And yeah, even today, you know, the tears, the hysterics and, and things like that. Um, so for me, that was probably the most traumatic thing at the age of 10 as a child is being, being basically responsible for splitting, not responsible for splitting the family, but making the decision how we live from now moving forward. Um, But I I didn't really think it would affect you later on as as an adult. You know, as you rightly touched on, we do a lot in, in the mental health arena and, um, there was a study in the UK that, especially in the military, if you're in the military and there's a, there's a problem, they're very quick to throw PTS out, you know, post-traumatic stress because you're in the military. Well, actually, 75% of men and women who have post-traumatic stress in the military has got nothing to do with their time in the military. It's all to do with their childhood. Um, it's just triggers within the military. So, yeah, I was I was only recently made aware of that. It's actually... The majority of people's mental health problems now has got nothing to do with the current. You know, when you're older, you can deal with things a lot better. It's what's happened uh, prior to that.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's, it's an important thing that a lot of us aren't aware of. You know, and like I said, it was very new for me, and I was, you know, quite embedded in this whole area. But when you think of it as your foundation, you know, if your foundation is strong, and then you you add the trauma of police fire, military. You know, a lot of people do well, and good for them, you know. Yeah, but but yeah. if that foundation is already a little fragile, I mean, I had some stuff in my my past, but I had people on on the show that have gone anywhere from being a middle sibling and feeling unloved all the way through to sexual, you know, abuse. Um mm. That you know then does not give you the strong foundation to see and do what we do in our professions. So if we're missing that puzzle piece, it can be maddening for someone trying to trying to solve their own mental health problems and all they're being told is oh it's what you saw at war or it's what you saw as a firefighter
1: yeah yeah and i think i think same with the with with the um uh, the blue light services and the military it's some depending on their background they see that uh, i know a lot of recruits see that as their new family and you know that's why they say you're friends for life because they probably have come from an unstable background or Yeah, um, a broken family and and all of a sudden there's a bit of stability um, within the military and so you don't really tend to, there's not really that many issues when they're in the military, it tends to be when they leave and they've now left that family, you know, we call it an identity crisis you know, know, where do I now fit in society, what is my role, what is my purpose, so um, I, I find, you know the military doesn't help their mental health it just sort of calms it and then when they leave, then it sort of rears its head again.
0: Yeah. Sebastian Junger's book, Tribe, I thought was, was incredible. And yeah. then he hits on just that and it makes so much sense. And I think a lot of people in our professions, you know, have significant trauma that they brought in. And the thing is that can also be seen as a weakness. And I disagree if it's, if it's, If it's not resolved, if it's not addressed, then absolutely it can create weaknesses. But if you have people that have been through that, and and I've always suggested that we give people – Counseling at the beginning of their career, as they enter the yeah. military, as they enter fire, you now can create very, very, you know, resilient men and women that would thrive in the military. But then, as you touched on, we've also got to do the same thing as they transition out because to go from that sense of purpose and that community to sitting in a flat on your own can be jarring yeah. and, and and deadly to some people.
1: Yeah, no, I, and I think that there's a lot more science, a lot more education and information around it. I. I joined the military where it was it was a taboo. Even to, even when I left, it was still a taboo. It was only you know I've been out of the military ten years now, and and I go back and guest speak for the military, and you you now see posters directing you know people to to help uh, everywhere. That that was you know you would dare to go speak to your your peers and say you have got a problem because you're worried that they would see you're weak uh, or you didn't think you were going to go on the next tour. Um, but yeah, I think the whole, the, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of changes, a lot of changes from uh, from old to now. And it's interesting, now I have the education, to understand more about mental health. It would be interesting about looking back, if I knew then what I knew now, you'd probably be in some, some real telltale signs with some people and be able to help a bit early. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, you mentioned growing up in an Aldershot or ending in Aldershot. I know this just from your conversation. I'm not super well versed in the British uh, military, but that's a predominantly army town. So walk me through the selection of that branch. um, And then, you know, which which roles in in the army that you found yourself before you went to the special operations, special forces?
1: Yeah. So my father, like I said, he was a tracksuit soldier. I didn't really. No, I didn't really know much about the military, the, the structure of the military. I didn't know who was who. You know, In Oldershot, it was the home of the British Army, as you rightly touched on, and it was very airborne heavy. The parachute regiment were there, and, you know, two para, three para. Um, where my school was in Oldershot, there was the hot air balloon where the paras do their first jump. You know, the Red Devils used to take off from our sports field. So, it, you know, you look in the sky and all you see was parachutes. Um, and, uh, but my so I actually went to the careers office and in older shot came out and I was joining the parachute regiment. I was like, you're not, you know, it took me straight back in. Um, He was in the Royal Engineers and I wasn't aware that in the Royal Engineers, you can do the para course, you can do the commando course, you can do both and actually be attached to the Royal Marines or attached to the parachute regiment. But also within the Royal Engineers, you get a trade as well. You know, you can be everything from a plumber, a carpenter, all the way up to a draftsman, you know, um, and all these other great trades as well. So for me and, and my father as well, I was thinking short term, you know, I, I just had that three years in my head and I was going to be a fireman. So if I can get a trade as well, that would be great. So I went back in and I, I joined the Royal Engineers. Um, I finished my basic training in the Royal Engineers. And one of my instructors was a 5'9 commando guy, you know, and I sort of looked at it looked at him and I saw these maroon berets, I saw these green berets, all these like, these specialists. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe do something of like that. But because of my dad's sporting background and my my surname, I got posted to Germany straight away, who the army football champions. They're like, you're Davy Stotts, boy, you're going to go play in Germany. So so I, I flew over to Germany, again, young 18-year-old boy in Europe, you know, getting extra money for being in, I think it was 50 Deutschmarks a day, extra for being in Germany and it only cost 18 Deutschmarks for uh, 24 bottles of Bex. So, you know, as a young lad, it it was a great lifestyle, but worked in the gym there, but I was just playing football all the time and working in the gym and I could just see myself just following my father's same uh, path. So I decided I was going to, I want to, you know, carve my own path. So I uh, applied for the um, 5.9 commando course. Um, which is your arms commando course. Because in going back to Oldershot, there was no Marines or commandos in Oldershot. It was like, yeah, you, you wouldn't, if it, was a, if it was a careers officer, it would have got burned down. So I'd never really heard of the commandos, especially the SPS, which I eventually went to. So did the commando course and then spent my next eight years with Free Commander Brigade and part of Brigade Reconnaissance Force, uh, part of Wrecking Troop, getting my parachuting jumps, got my diving courses out the military. And uh, as you can gather now, that free point I originally was going to do sort of like what was in the distance. You know, I started becoming more confident in the military and it was like, what can I do next? What can I do next? And I then saw myself having a career in the military and sort of forgot about the fire brigade.
0: Now, I know you became a PTI as well. So what? What did that look like now? And have you, since you, know, you transitioned now, have you seen a metamorphosis in the training styles in that role?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, my, my first course when I went to Germany, uh, my, my, my boss, when I arrived, he said, oh, you're a kiss baller, so he knows that I play football. He's like, well, I'm never going to see you, but I need, to, I need to allocate someone in the gym, so you're going to go and do your PTI course. That was the first course I did, leaving basic training was the PTI course. Looking back now, and I sort of joke. Some of the stretches that we did are probably all illegal now. You know the science that's involved in in physical fitness and training. You know everything we did was probably like illegal. I did it all completely wrong. I didn't practice what I preach. You no know, teaching, doing the, the warm ups and the cool downs. Um, but yeah, you know if, if you if you took a team now to do what we did then, they they just refused to do it. You know health and safety would would just kick in. But. Um, but, yeah, and I've seen not just from then to now, but I've seen it evolve, you know, through the years. Um, you know, when I left Special Forces, you know, the guys there had all these massage balls and bands and things. And I was like, what's all this? And it's actually prevention of injuries. So it wasn't so much on the fitness because um, we had that, you know, it was actually preventing injuries and staying fit. So, but, yeah, there's been a whole, whole evolution.
0: Absolutely. Now, obviously when you're in this role this is pre 9-11 as well so <laughs> were, were you in the sbs by 01?
1: no i was still in the uh five uh, recce commandos
0: okay so this is always a kind of interesting um kind of perspective when someone's got one foot on each side of that event what did training and preparation look like prior and what did you see a shift after that particular you know event changed everything
1: yeah without a doubt that 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 you know, that, that event in itself, just especially in the special forces community, and, um, you know, so the, the tier one special forces, the SAS, the yes, but also tier two, the Marines, the Paras, the Commandos, you know, the, it just changed. You know, we went from when I joined the military, there was, a, there was an advert back in the day, a recruitment advert, and it was like this guy called Frank. And everywhere you saw Frank, he was either windsurfing or he was climbing and he was doing all these sporting activities. Post 9-11, no, Frank was no more. It was literally operations after operations, which for the guys, a lot of the guys joined the military. That's what they joined the military for. They probably didn't want to go sailing around the world or windsurfing, and they wanted to do that. So it really did change, but it changed the tempo of, um, of the work they were doing. But Also, I was an instructor on the All-Arms Commando course in uh, 2002, I remember doing my All-Arms Commander course in 97 and they, they, they're teaching you stuff and you're like, well, we're never going to use this. You know, we're just going to be on exercise. But actually, post 9-11, everyone knew when you were teaching people about Casivacs and things like that, they, they they soon listened and soon practiced and, and made sure they were, uh, they were slick on it because... No, no doubt they will be practicing that soon. Everything that was in training was soon to be turned into, into reality rather than just training, training, training. Um, you know, they were soon gonna be getting some rounds down.
0: So did you make the decision to go into the SBS um you know after 9 Did you had you deployed before, or was that kind of the journey that ultimately led you to Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, so for for me, um you know, I, I, going back, you know, I, I didn't, when I joined the military, I, I didn't see aspirations in the special forces or the paras or the commandos. Uh, as, I, as I was doing courses, and I, I joined, I, was, I weighed some, like 67 kilos, and I was about five foot seven, you know, half the person I am today. And then I finished basic training, which was 10 weeks. I mean, it's like, okay, that wasn't too bad. What's next? And as I was Doing these courses, I was physically getting bigger and stronger, but mentally I was getting stronger as well. So my sort of career, you know, I then did the commandos, then went recce troops, did the diving courses. I did every arduous course you could in the Royal Engineers except Special Forces. So literally, my, my career, I was almost funneling myself in one direction. My peers had all gone to the Special Forces. But coming from an Army background, you could only go to the SAS. The Royal Marines would go to the SBS. But what was happening is the Marine, but sorry, but if you're in the Marines, you could also go to the SAS. Um, they had the choice. But a lot of guys don't like diving. Uh, a lot of the Marines didn't like diving. And so the SBS were losing a cooler talent to the SAS. Um, and so what they did is they opened up Tri-Service just at the time that I was looking at doing selection. So for me, I'd spent eight years with Free Commander Brigade working alongside the Marines. I, I, when I left commando, I became the senior diving instructor at the uh, military diving school down in Portsmouth. So for me, I was very comfortable in the water. So the SBS for me was the natural transition rather than going SAS. So uh, yeah, I became one of the first candidates to to, to, uh, apply for selection on that. Uh, Much to the disgust of my friends in the SAS um, just because you know, it'd never been done before. You know, why why are you doing that? You know, it's um, um. But yeah, on selection, they tell you to be the grey man. You know, try and blend in. It's a six month course. It'd be at least be the grey man for the first two thirds, and then as as this course dwindles, you, of course you'll be you'll be recognised. But yeah, I was the grey man for about two minutes, um, literally, because because from five nine commander, especially recce troop, we had a one hundred percent pass rate on selection, and so it was like hang on, if, if he goes and passes, what does that then do as a message to others? So there was a lot of eyes on me during that period.
0: So I ask this, obviously, anyone who's, who's kind of been in a tier one selection process, there's a high attrition rate in a lot of these. What was it physically and mentally that allowed you to succeed when so many rang the bell?
1: Um, I think for me is... I'd done selection, I got injured on selection before um, I had a knee operation. So I sort of had that initial I knew physically what was what was required. For me, going into my second selection, I just knew as long as I stay away from injury, you know, I should be there. And I was very comfortable in my in my soldiering abilities. Um, and, and you and you hear horror stories, you know, you hear things coming back from guys who haven't passed. I mean you but you may find out actually, no. They were just saving face. So I saw guys go and pass. I saw guys that come back, and soon realised there wasn't actually a pattern. You know, it wasn't the good-looking guys who looked the part. You know, it's um, it's all on the individuals. But for me, I was confident. I know I was 28 years old as well. I was a sergeant, um, so I had a lot of experience. So I was just confident in my in my abilities. But as you said, a, there is a high attrition rate. We went from 200 down to eight um, and you know each day when you're on the, on the hills you see guys leaving and, and and it's not good seeing guys leave but it does give you that little little drive right I'm doing well I'm doing well and you know just try and keep your head down um, but for me I, I think a lot of it comes down to to belief that you can do it and I, I generally believe that I, I could do it going into that uh, I remember one of the instructors asking, saying to me so do you think you're going to be here at the end I said yeah exactly all right that's confident i said yeah i'm confident (laughs) he said it and then they they need that as well because if you have doubt in yourself then when they start questioning you then you're going to start believing them but if you're actually confident in yourself and then they start questioning you just just ignore the white noise absolutely so with moving forward from
0: that a question that i always like to ask anyone who's been deployed to combat as a a civilian and you know a a firefighter and someone that's never never worn that particular uniform we i don't think so much in the uk but definitely here in the u.s get a very polarizing view of war it's either Mm -hmm. the kind of you know let kill them all let god sort them out or it's they're all a bunch of baby killers and there's not much in between of the real human experience so this is a two-part question the first part when you found yourself overseas, was there a moment, regardless of whatever politics sent you over there, that you realized that there were horrible people amongst this population that did need to be taken care of?
1: Yeah, of course, you know, when you're you're working in, in in the special forces, we've got a lot of intelligence as well, you know, so especially tier one special forces, we you know, there was fobs all around Afghanistan. But for us, our main role was the HVT, the high visibility targets. Every time we went on the ground, it was specifically for the bad guys. Um, but my first, um, I remember arriving, I used to dress up as the locals and drive around in the car, you know, doing a familiarization. And it was during uh, Ramadan. Uh, so couldn't have any water and things like that. And but I remember when Eid happened when Eid you know, Eid kicked in and it was like christmas day over there in afghanistan and all the kids are out there in their colorful clothing um so really you saw both sides at night we were with we door kicking getting the bad guys but then i then saw humanity in the day i just saw people trying to go about about their normal lives but as you touched on here you know hollywood doesn't help matters when it comes to special forces you know Everyone thinks you know it's, it's what they see on the movies, you know, but that's, that's that offensive action is probably twenty five percent of what we do in the special forces, um, and we're very good at that, And that's that last resort. If we need to um, implement that, then then we, then we can. Actually, 50 percent of what we do is support and influence it's hearts and minds. So being embedded with the locals, understanding the actual the ground truth, what's going on, not what's being reported back home on the, on the TV. And that, that's where you go back to that ignorance. People, and it's not their fault, it's just what they're being told. Uh, they know no difference. So so for me, that really opened my eyes, you know, we were doing the sexy stuff. We were doing that, but we're also doing a lot of good stuff as well, which people will never pick up on.
0: Well, speaking of that, and you touched on this when we spoke about traveling earlier, the message that is portrayed is, oh, we're at war with Afghanistan. We're at war with Iraq. Now, I've had Afghanis on here. I've had Iraqis on here that supported U.S. troops. And yeah. you, know, you hear about, no, there were extremists in that country, the same way there are extremists in the U.K. and the U.S. Um, and in that country, they were torturing and murdering their own people and terrorizing their own people. So yeah. you hear of incredible you know compassion from the u.s military and you hear also of stories of kindness and compassion from the afghanis or the iraqis towards you know each other or or the troops so were there any any kind of elements of kindness and compassion that really stuck with you
1: yeah um what from from the 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 public
0: yeah yeah i mean i think that's something you don't hear about it's just you know the the regular afghani family that's trying to get on with their business you know whilst living amongst all this terrorism
1: yeah, like I, I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, what some of the most hospitable countries in the world are like Afghan, Iraq, Libya and places like that, you know, you, you see it all the time. You have people offering, you know, your water. You know, for a majority of our operations are done at night, so people didn't really get to get to see us. But I remember we were serving alongside some Afghan nationals and I remember chatting to these guys and they had brothers who were fighting for the Taliban. And that wasn't that, you know. I thought that was quite strange. But actually, when they started, they started opening up. What it was is, the Taliban were were paying these people, and they were paying them on time. So a lot of these guys, these fighting men, were were, were family men. They were fathers. They were brothers, and they were just trying to support their family. Whereas the Afghan National Army weren't paying them on time, and so that was a, an effect on the family. So it wasn't their choice because. They believed in what they were fighting for. It was their choice because they needed to support their families. And so you would sometimes have families on family. Um, uh, so it really opened my eyes. It wasn't, I didn't think, yes, there was the extremists, but some of them were just trying to survive. You know, how can I put food on the table for my family? Well, if the Taliban are paying me on time and paying me well, then I'll do that. But then you obviously see then, do they, they generally believe in what they were fighting for? Probably not.
0: And just staying on that subject for a second, even though I'm kind of um, fast forwarding when it comes to the the timeline, I know very recently you've helped with a lot of the um, evacuations from Afghanistan. So talk to me yeah. about the Afghani people supporting you guys over there and, and why it's important for us to bring them out.
1: Yeah. So obviously we did, you know, the Afghan people, especially interpreters did so much uh, to assist guys And, and I think, You know, I think we sort of turned our backs on them as well. As you rightly touched on there, we we got 1,200 people out of Afghanistan. And when I say we, you know, we didn't physically go in and grab them. You know, in 2014, when I evacuated the Canadian embassy from Libya, I went in and grabbed them and got them out. This process was all about um, communication, having the right people in the right place, but none of it would have been done. And same with the uh, Libyan one, if it wasn't for the locals, You you know, there's a lot of security companies, a lot of organizations that, um, you know, think they can just go in and do do the job. You can't do anything in these people's countries without their, their say-so, without their assistance. And so, you know, getting everyone out of Afghanistan, helping the Americans, helping the Brits. Now, that was the Afghanis doing that. That wasn't just us going out again. Um, and so even to the very last point, they were still helping, even though we were just leaving them there on their own.
0: Yeah, well, I want to get to that in in a little bit as well. Um, Before we do, though, you're kind of building up to your transition out. You had a parachute accident in 2011. So talk to me about that and then which injuries that left you with.
1: Yeah, so uh, we were about to go out to Afghanistan again, uh, doing pre-deployment training. It's about two weeks before the tour started and we're in Oman. And uh, I was doing what's called a hey ho jump, high altitude, high opening. So it's one of our methods of insertion. So you exit the aircraft at uh, 15,000 feet, the parachute deploys straight away, so it's attached to the aircraft. I mean, you you travel in the air, um, you know, about 30 minutes travel time in the air, uh, can get anything up to, depending on the winds, up to 50 kilometres to the target point. So uh, we've done num- num- uh, numerous of these jumps. I think it was my third or fourth jump of the day, uh, the last one of the day, and uh, exit the aircraft as I normally do, but Straight away, I knew there was a problem. You know, where I was supposed to be looking, I wasn't. I was looking up, and my foot caught in the line above my head. So I'm trying, frantically trying to kick my leg out because the I know that the parachute soon to uh, be, uh, be pulled open. I couldn't clear my leg in time, and my leg got pulled over my head and to the right. And thankfully, my, my heel uh, cleared from the lines, otherwise it potentially could have taken your leg off. And straight away... I knew there was a there was a, there was a problem. The pain was that severe that I, I was vomiting because of the pain. Um, but at fifteen thousand feet, you're on the limits of oxygen as well. So the air is so thin. So I was also drifting in and out of consciousness. There was vomit down me. I could hear the guys on the net, and I could see the parachutes. So there's no point in me coming up on the net and telling them I've got a problem. You know, I have to get stay with them and get to the target area. Got to the uh, got to the DZ watched the hair approaches, made sure that I got, I got a decent approach because I, would land in, I was landing now on one leg. If I got it wrong, I could have damaged the, the good leg. But it was, it was great landing, uh, Landed on one leg. Um, but the damage sustained, you know, that, that, that ended my career. I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus within my knee, my hamstring, my calf and my quadriceps. So, you know, normally if you tear, tear lig- ligaments within your knee, you know, you've got your quads and your calves, your supporting muscles, but that had all gone as well. So literally, I just couldn't put any, any weight on it at all.
0: Maybe if you did some of those dodgy stretching exercises you used to teach, you would have been all right.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it, it, it caught up on me.
0: <laughs> so as we touched on earlier, the transition out is a struggle and especially, you know, I, I find when i look retroactively there are people that promote i think the struggle that go from a team to a desk i think you know retirement is another one but injury is is a a real jarring one because you've been snatched from that team and you know sometimes your physicality has been snatched as well so what was that transition out like for you
1: it was really difficult you know at the time i didn't really uh, appreciate how how hard it was you know as you touched on you know I was going through an identity crisis. You know, I I I wasn't retiring. I still had, you know, what was I at that point? Um, Sixteen years. I still had at least six years, and and planned on staying in as an officer and going on. So I I was a lifer. So I didn't have any sort of aspirations of leaving the military. So that was taken from me. Um, and so what? Where? What is my role within society? Where do I fit within society? You know, but also. Where I got to in the military was because of my physical robustness. I couldn't even now run 100 metres without my knee giving way. So I sort of lost that identity as well. Um, But to add to the pressure, my wife was eight months pregnant. Um, I didn't have any lead up to to leaving the military. I didn't do any sort of career planning. And so there's also that pressure as well. How am I going to support my family? Is there going to be any work for me? You know, what am I going to do? So there was, a, there was an accumulation of all of that going on at the time. Uh, but thankfully, within 48 hours, I got my first phone call to do a private security job in, in Libya. So that sort of took that, that pressure off. But I hadn't really addressed the fact that I'd left the military at that point. I was just so focused on my new career um, that I didn't really address those sort of underlying issues until later on. So when did they rear their ugly head? They they reared their heads. So, you know, I worked in, ended up working in the private security industry, um, Libya being my first job. Um, I was trying to find a niche within the industry. A lot of my friends were doing uh, anti-piracy stuff on the east coast of Africa. I didn't want to trade on their foot. Um, but soon I identified that these large security companies were charging seven, six, seven-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans, which weren't in place. And so... And the Libyans didn't want it, Libya being another Afghanistan and Iraq, once Gaddafi had fallen, they wanted to take control. So for me, I saw a bit of an opening. I bought, there was a huge proliferation of weapons, so I bought 30 weapons off the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt uh, and designed my own evacuation plans, sold them to the oil and gas sector. 2012, when the American ambassador got killed in Benghazi, uh, I was there that night and I single hand got an oil company from Benghazi to Tripoli. In between all these, I'm doing all these other jobs around the world as well. You know I was very fortunate to, I worked ad hoc. so I wasn't doing rotations six weeks on, six weeks on so off and I was learning every time I went on a job, I was learning as a new country, I was learning about cultures, I was learning about the, the private secure industry. so every, whether it's the London Olympics or the World Cup in Brazil, the UAE royal family, they're super. Took that from Barcelona and Maldives. I was training the Kurdish special forces to fight ISIS. Yeah, you know, I was doing all all sorts. But and then um, in 2014, I got the phone call from the Canadian embassy when I was in Brazil covering the World Cup, and they said, "Look, your name keeps coming up. We're we're stuck in Tripoli, uh, 18 military and four diplomats." So I, I went back in. And I single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy, 18 military and four diplomats. And like I said, it sounds all sexy in Hollywood, but never had to dig up any of my weapons. It was understanding the demographics, the tribal influences, speaking to the right, uh, the right people. So your original question, when did it rear my head, was when I came home from that trip. and my wife would wash my kit. Bags would be packed ready for the next phone call, but it could be anywhere in the world. And she'd soon rear... Really, Uh, highlighted him had only been home 21 days in a 365-day period. And so basically I then I was trying to match the adrenaline rush I had whilst I was in the special forces without coming to terms with the fact that I'd actually left. Um, So I was pursuing that that danger, I was pursuing that, that thrill when actually i put myself at real high risk <laughs> and those around me. But, you know, they're they, they all successful. So something had to change. So that was really when it, that, that reared its head. The it fact, that I hadn't really come to terms with fact that I'd left the military. But also when I left the military as well, I, they didn't pay me out on the right medical pension plan. They'd come like one below. But actually, five years later, I won a tribunal hearing. And that was, again, was another factor that i felt like that that i'd closed that chapter Uh, you know i felt that i'd been reciprocated for my time so there was a few things going on as well at the time
0: now with the chasing adrenaline i think that's another thing that um is not as recognized as it should be so a lot of us i think find ourselves in you know military and first responder professions partly To stop, you know, a domino effect of say, you know, multi-generational elements partly, um, to be the protector role now. If you were, you know, a victim when you were younger, but another thing is that adrenaline does fill the void. And I saw this in my own career. I've I've had, you know, friends on that were firefighters. Um, I've heard, you know, many special ops guys as well around the 10 year mark is when that newness kind of wears off and what maybe is a, is it exciting firefight for you when you're year one? Like for me, at year 10, it takes a bomb burner to get my heart rate up. And that's not a, an ego thing. It's just, you know, you get yes. more experience, you get better. You, you've seen it before. Um, so when you started transitioning away from these high adrenaline elements, was that when you started having to truly face some of the things that you hadn't dealt with up to that point?
1: Um, I think for me, for me um, I just need to be busy. I need to feel like I have a purpose. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I took a sabbatical, hung up those security boots and my wife is a property developer. So I started, you know, do property, you know, helping her out. But during that whole period of since my injury up until now, that whole security period, I, I sort of neglected my own physical well-being. I was so fixated on, on the work and getting the next work and things like that. that I hadn't really given time for myself you know, to get myself physically active again. I'd sort of lost that, lost that robustness. And so I bought a push bike off Amazon, you know, and just cycled to and from the office. It was about eight miles there. Um, but straight away, just being active again, and I wasn't doing anything uh, exciting. I was just cycling eight miles, but I just felt there was a huge weight off my shoulders. Um, and so, you know, with my backstory, you can imagine... I sat in these architects and planners meetings and I was just bored. And my wife could see that. And so I just needed to do something that was going to keep me entertained and challenge me as well. So maybe that's what I was doing in the security. I was trying to find those exciting ones because they were more challenging than your normal day-to-day close protection consultancy. It was literally going in and doing the stuff. So I'd like to challenge. And so that's where the, the, the bike ride came up. My wife could see that I wasn't going to spend much time in the property development business. And so needed to sort of focus my my energies and attention onto something else to keep myself physically and mentally engaged.
0: So there's quite a big distance difference between 8 miles and 14,000 miles. So mm-hmm. <laughs> walk me through yeah. an Amazon purchase of a bike to why you chose that route to, to what that journey looked like.
1: Oh, yeah. I wish I had a video camera on, my, on that bike from Amazon because I remember... You know, I, I didn't know much. I bought a cyclo cross bike. So it had thick tires because it, the roads in Aberdeen had a lot of potholes. I bought some mountain bike shoes and cleats, and I actually set the bike up. And when I cycled from the house, I had to stop because I couldn't find the gears. I didn't realise the gears were in the uh, were in the brakes. You know, because since when I cycled as a young boy in a BMX, you know, things had changed a lot. But um, yeah, I was looking for. You know, we do a lot in the philanthropy world. Me and my wife, um, especially in the, in, the, in the veteran community, uh, the veteran charity uh, area. And so, I said, "Well, I want to do. I wanted to leave a legacy. I'd always read Guinness Book of Records as a young boy. I was about forty. I was just coming up to my fortieth birthday, so I was having a midlife crisis, panicking. I was going to be really old. And so, I was. I was looking at original bye bye, was Cairo to Cape Town." But the majority of my work was in Africa. So I was like, well, I've seen Africa. And then my wife then found the world's longest road, which is the Pan American Highway, which runs from southern Argentina to northern Alaska, 14,000 miles. And so I thought, perfect. You know, that's the perfect one for me because it's countries there I've not been to. Um, Climate wise, we're going to be tested in all, all different types of climates. And for me, it, it was a challenge. Yeah, I, I knew mentally that I, I had had the capacity because of what I'd done in the special forces, you know, endurance wise. And cycling was the only one, the only sport that wasn't really aggravating my knee as well. So I knew that cycling wasn't going to hinder um, my, my injury. So that, that's how we, how we chose that challenge.
0: Now talk to me about the training, because I know you didn't just go immediately from an eight mile commute to, to 14,000. So with you having the, the background as a PTI, obviously as, as a, you know, all the way through the, the tiers, as it were in the military, how did you titrate that to get to the point where you were able to not only do that, that journey, but actually break a record?
1: Yeah, so for me, I, I, I wasn't a cyclist. So I was buying all the magazines, I was reading all the books, and, and I was getting a lot of the information that I needed. And I was, I'd, I'd started doing some cycle rides. I did a century ride, which is a 100-mile ride within the first week. Uh, decided I was going to do Land's End John O'Groats, which is a big ride in the UK. Um, because for me, the Pan American Highway was 11 uh, – sorry, was, uh, was 14 – uh, Lance and Groats back to back. So for me, I needed to at least do one of them. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't know much about cycling. I had to get a cycling coach in to sort of help me. You know, there was terminology like cadence and bike fit and things like that I didn't really know what that was. Um, but there was an element of stuff that I'd learned in the military that I did, I did keep and did wanted to still use. Like my coach Ken, if he had it his way, you know, see a lot of cyclists about as thin as his pencil. Um, weigh, you weigh know, uh, 70 kilos and 2 to 3% body fat. But this challenge was almost like a polar expedition. You're going to be losing weight from the day start to finish. So I know when I went on selection and did some of these other courses, I wasn't 100% fit. I was about 75%, 80% fit and then got fit as the course went on because if you, if you go on there 100% fit, you'll burn out. So – I made sure I kept some weight on, so I started weighing at ninety kilos. You know, I didn't look like a look like a cyclist, Um, but as I was training for the year, I wasn't you know I wasn't excellent at hills. I wasn't excellent at speed. I was just a good all round cyclist. But from the moment I set off to the day I finished on the actual bike ride I changed as a cyclist as I went along. I just learned as I went along, you know, there's a physical element, but it was actually the planning. You know, I'd never done a challenge. So I just took a military set of orders and put it on this challenge. I just crossed out ammunition. So the physical side was just a, one of the pillars. There was all this other stuff as well. We were trying to raise a million pounds. You know, I, I also had to do all the logistics and the planning and every, everything else. So the, the physical bit was something I was quite comfortable with. I was like, well, I'll get fit as, as I go along. As long as I've got a decent baseline, then we can work from that.
0: Now, you talked about philanthropy. Which were the organizations that you were supporting?
1: So, originally, um, me and my wife work a lot in the modern slavery, human trafficking arena, and that was something that we were going to do. Um, so, I, I, I rang a good friend of mine, Prince Harry, Um, we've been friends 15 years and we've done a lot of stuff in philanthropy behind the scenes. And I sort of, I told him that I was going to be doing this challenge, um, if there was any campaigns he had in mind. And he was just about to launch a campaign with his brother and Kate, uh, this is back in 2017 called Heads Together, which was a mental health campaign. Um, and it really, it it formed 11 charities, everything from, from postnatal depression, you know, young children, teenagers, all the way through to, you know, fully, uh, fully grown adults and veterans and, and blue light services as well. So for me, I, I, I understood a little bit about mental health through some of my friends in the military, but I wasn't aware how big it was throughout the whole of society. Um, and so for me, it was probably that was my first real introduction into, into mental health as well. So, so that was the campaign that we, uh, we did it for. And I set a target of a million pounds. When I got introduced to the Royal Foundation, um, you know, we sat down and they said, "Well, what is the message you're trying to promote?" And I hadn't really thought about messaging at this point. You know, I did it because you know Harry had asked me to come in, and so I sort of sat there for a while and I said, "Well, physical activity, you know, helps your mental state." I was trying to think how it helped me, and I said. And I said, so I got a, I, the reply. I got was, oh, you can't use that. So well, why not? I said, because it's not been scientifically proven. I said, well, that's fine, but I don't need a scientist to tell me that I feel good when I'm training. So I ignored them anyway and carried on using that, promoting that message because there was. There's obviously three, you know, three ways of um, addressing mental health. One is communication, which was at the time everyone was was all, was really pumping that message. It was all about communication. The other was medication, which you want to try and avoid. But no one's really pushing the physical angle. Um, so that's that's where I was. That's what I was trying to promote with this challenge.
0: Yeah, there's a phrase, don't wait for science to prove what you already know. And I love that. And there's some things that don't yeah. need research.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I, I guess, spoke so that was obviously 2017 when uh, when I was told that. I, I guess spoke at the mental health awareness um, event in for Scotland, rugby in Scotland, um, football club at Hamden Park and I, I, I explained that scenario and afterwards uh, a doctor came up to me with his big folder slams it down he said there's the science he goes it has been scientifically proven so yeah I just think there was you know there's a lot more messaging around it but I, for me physical activity is always the one I always promote you know a, a good story sort of going off off piece a friend of mine who I serve in the commandos he had really bad post-traumatic stress um, and he was a school teacher and his wife rang me and said he's sort of having a bit of a bit of a downtime. It was over the Christmas period. Um, so I spoke to him, but he'd just been to the doctor, which was great. And his doctor was like, ah, well, you know, w- what's changed? He said, well, I'm a teacher and we've, we're off school now until the January. And he said, yeah, but what's changed? He said, well, I normally run into school. Down, he said, "We'll put your trainers on," and that's what he did. That was his. He didn't give him any medication; just told him to put his trainers on and he changes. So that was when I sort of then realised there was that, there was that connect with physical activity. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's, it's a shame we talked about COVID when we first started talking because obviously that's kind of around you moved to the states.
1: Yeah. That's
0: what was so sad. Seeing the messaging was. Everything that is good for you was kept from people. They always said, don't go outside, don't be around people, don't exercise, don't eat well, you know, and it was just, it was so horrendous. And of course, we saw an increase in a lot of mental health challenges during that period.
1: Yeah, it'll be, it'd be interesting to, in the years to come, to see the statistics around suicide and mental health on COVID to those that actually died of COVID, you know. Um, but we, I, I lived in Scotland at the time in the beginning, and we were allowed one to two hours, and actually, there was, that, there was that downside of COVID, but there, there was also the upside of actually seeing families making the most of that. So that one hour that they did get out with the, with the kids and go running was probably one hour more than they had pre-COVID. Um, so as you would have seen, there was a huge spike in sports equipment sales and things like that during that period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you touched on Prince Harry. I want to just get that for a moment. I, one of my, uh, my guests was, um, good friends with William and he actually flew with him a lot. And we got to really hear about him as a human being and, and actually a a great, great rescue pilot. Um, the same thing with Harry. And sadly, you know, there's been a lot of negative talk recently because again, people are getting the kind of sensational, sensationalized tabloid stories versus the real human ones. What I saw was, um, William and Harry, you know, had the Invictus games. They were supposed to be coming to Florida. they did come, excuse me, to f- Florida. Speaking of knee injuries, I tore my meniscus two days before, but I was supposed to be the the kind of the spokesperson for my fire department because they were coming to my to you know, where I protected. Um so I was gonna meet him and I was gonna kinda bit to be a somewhat of an ambassador and I and I lost that sadly because I wasn't allowed to be on shift because I was hurt. Um but I see those boys doing such incredible things, carrying a lot of the altruism that it appeared that their mother, you know, put into into our country initially. So talk yeah. to me about his his role as a soldier and him as, as a human being, as a normal person.
1: Yeah, so I, I met Harry actually in 2007. We were on a training course together. And, you know, I, I, do, I do openly speak a lot um, in defending him that, you know, that was probably the only time in his life that he could feel like he was, a normal person. You know, he wasn't being judged because of his titles. He's being judged of his role as a, as an officer. But, you know, we talked earlier on, on, the, on this podcast about childhood trauma. You know, you've got two boys here whose mum was taken from him, uh, who probably didn't need to be taken from him. So there's obviously those underlying issues as well. So it was great when they both set up the heads together campaign. Obviously, William had seen a lot on the, on the, um, as a first responder and then Harry had also seen a lot in in regards with the military. So it wasn't just their own experiences, stuff they'd seen themselves, but what was great uh, messaging wise from, from these two was the fact that mental health doesn't discriminate. You know, it's not a class thing. It's not a gender thing. It's not, you know, it it doesn't discriminate at all. So if someone from the Royal family can talk openly talk about their mental health and anyone can. So those two opening up about their own sort of issues as well was huge and, and really had a waterfall effect. Um, but yes, you've got two, I say young boys are not young anymore, but yeah, you've got young guys who lost their, lost their mum and, and, and they lost their mums in the media and it's the same media that they still have to work with um, today. You know, I, I, again, I, I believe that's why Harry chose to come over here. You know, He saw history repeating itself and was just protecting his family.
0: Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think that's so important to hear them as people. And I, I admire them. And I'm not someone that would blindly admire just because you live in a castle, for example. You know, it's, a, it's an earned thing, as you know, in, in our mm-hmm. professions, but. I truly do, and I I moved to the U.S. and chased an American girl here, so I get that too. <laughs> but, you know, you hear, like I said, you know, William's actions as, as a responder, as a pilot, and, you know, Harry um in the military role, and then seeing them taking care of our wounded warriors, seeing them messaging when it comes to mental health, and I think that's a very important, you know, part of who they are that i don't think gets enough exposure you know and sadly that's the the tabloids and i think that's yeah. the problem with a lot of things i don't know if you see the same here whether it's fox or cnn it's it's not it's not real people that they're interested in it's the clickbait no
1: yeah no it is it's uh, it's interesting because obviously i don't see any of the harry's back in the uk it's not really reported here but yeah here as you touched on fox or cnn it's it's hard to it's hard to actually find decent the real news what's going on (laughs) in the in the world you know i really struggle that so i still still connect to like bbc world news and and a few of them but yeah it's um unfortunately it's the society we're in it's all about clickbait and false news and stuff like that but
0: yeah absolutely well i want to get to something that we talked about again before we hit record when it comes to pr- preparation and having a plan b and a plan c and yeah. um, you know maybe the 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 uk versus us model but before we do um the the ride that you did you had an initial goal and that goal ultimately um well you achieved something a lot faster than the initial goal so talk to me about that journey
1: yeah so the world record when i applied it was at 117 days um i'd spoken to the Previous world record holders, they'd all gone from south, sorry, north to south. And all their issues were in South and Central America. So for me, from a military perspective, planning's perspective was well, why take a gamble with a second half? Why not get, address those issues early and get them out of the way? So that's what I did. I started. One of the things I'm proud of, I turned it on its head. I started from the south and, and went north. Um, from a styking perspective, was a great it was a great idea, you know. I got tailwind all the way through Peru. You know, when you talk about the Pan American Highway, you you think of gravel roads. Actually, in South America, there was only a ten-kilometer stage where I needed gravel tires. Everything else was was the fast slicks. Uh, so I took ten days off the South America world record, um, and then got into North America, Del Rio in Texas on on day seventy. Uh, I was now fourteen days. Ahead of, the, of the, the the main world record of 117 days, So I thought perfect. You know, I can have a rest now and then. My wife, who was very much the campaign director, she runs the whole project around me. You know, she was very much keeping all those distractions away from me. You know, especially when I was doing the training. You know runs the businesses. You know, pays the mortgage, looks after the family. I'd had five missed calls from her when I got into Texas, so straight away I knew there was a problem. Initially, my, my first thoughts were, were our children. So I jumped off the bike and I rang her and I said, oh, is everything okay? And she said, yeah, but what, but what do you wear to a royal wedding? I said, sorry. She said, what do you wear to a royal wedding? I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, we've been invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding. I said, that's nice. She goes, no, no, you don't understand. You need to be finished by day 102, which is 15 days ahead of the world record. So going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. 10 minutes later, I'm now a day behind um, so, but fortunately for me, being in America, um, I could cycle at night back in South and Central America because security situations, you know, we, we had to be off the road in the evenings. Um, so um, I, I now had a new target to, to aim for. But I got to Lubbock uh, in Texas the next day and we had 60 mile an hour winds and tornadoes. So I was grounded for another day. So I'm now two days behind. So there's an app on your phone called Windy TV which gives you the strength and directions of the winds forecasted for the next two weeks. It's about 95% accurate. And I just made a contingency plan. I just basically, I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours to miss the next weather window. Um, so the majority of my cycling in North America was done at night. You know, a lot of highway patrols stopped me at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning wondering what I was doing. And I was just playing chess with Mother Nature. So I had 17 days planned, to cycle North America. I did it at 11 and a half uh, from Del Rio to the Canadian border. And then, so I got a week outside and I was like, perfect. You know, the raw uh, went insecure and the world record should be secure. Um, I then got a pho- phone call about a professional cyclist who's already got three other world records who come out on social media that day and said that he would, wanted to be the first person to cycle under 100 days and was setting off in August. So every time I I hit my goal, my goal then kept moving. Um, But thankfully for me, I I was in a position that I could act on it um, at that point. You know, if I'd known about the Royal Wedding at the beginning or known about this guy at the beginning, I may have pushed myself too hard. Um, But yeah, I came in uh, in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes, which was 17 days ahead of the world record. And I say it wasn't my original plan, but it's just how, how things had unfolded. Amazing. How much were you able to raise in the end? So we raised um, $1.3 million uh, for mental health. Um, So I think that was more impressive than the bike ride itself. But again, thankfully, I had my wife who was sort of running that campaign behind me. Otherwise, I'd probably only raise about $50.
0: Well, As we started talking before, you you were in this role where you were able to do these pretty amazing evacuations, whether it was Libya, whether it was, you know, Afghanistan, and it seems like networking, you know, communication, diplomacy seem to be a very powerful tool that you use. And you mentioned not firing a shot yourself. When we contrast that with some of the the American philosophy, sometimes there is a, you know, use of force element to a lot of these, whether it's, you know, actually using a weapon or whether it's just aggressively trying to dominate a boardroom or you know whatever it is so talk to me about that different philosophy that, that you fostered and and you know what are what are some of the ways that people can apply that to their own professions whether it's a fire service or, or business for example
1: yeah so i think you know there's, there's different ways of skinning cats you know some people just think their way is the right way you know as you touched on, there I still work very much in the private security sector. Not so much myself evacuating people because my anonymity's gone, but still, still advising. And one of the things really opened my eyes coming to the US was the um, was the gun laws. You know, what I mean, you know, I, I was at the shot show uh, that in January, and I really opened my eyes how big an industry it was. But then you always see in. Um, you know, I'm I've, I've chatting to some of these big security companies and their sort of mindset is, well, I ask, I ask them what their security plan is and their MO, their uh, Modulus Operandus is, well, I've got a weapon. I said, yeah, but that should be your very last resort. What, is your, what are your ramp-up phases? What are your triggers to that point? Um, and there is a one. where. So we, I come from an environment, as we you back in the UK, where there is no guns, there is no gun laws. So we do a lot of planning insecurity and if something goes wrong we have a contingency and, and it's a bit like the bike ride you know i had a plan the plan was i had a start point I had a finish point but i had to change with what was happening on the ground at the time and i, and I think that's what i'm trying to address here in the, in the u.s is yes you have that which is great but you know there should be phases up until that you need to use that um you know we go you know i sort of laughed that you go from the special forces being the so one of the bravest in the world to actually the biggest coward because security guys should actually be able to see a situation uh, and go around it. Whereas some people like to find find trouble and find that action. So um yeah, that's what I was one of the message I'm trying to promote. is more the soft skills approach um, than the hard skills. Um But for me, the sort of lesson for for people with businesses is like you know use the advice of others. You know, I've got one way of doing things, and and, and I think it's that. Having travelled, you know, I've seen what works, to see what doesn't work, um, and you know, always, always challenge yourself, and always, always, always test yourselves. You know, one of the things we use is that like what works, what didn't work, and if we were going to do that again, what would we do differently? And I think you can do that in any any line of work that you do uh, as a debrief, uh, just to better your better your skills.
0: Now, is is there a uh, what's the best way of saying this? When when I I can think of certain calls in the fire service, for example, where there was an expert on scene. Say, for example, we were in a building and, and then the, the caretaker was kind of brushed aside. Oh, we're here now. And that person actually is the the, you know, the expert. He knows his building the best. He knows the fire systems, all those kind of things. And so I saw ego get in the way. Do you find that humility is kind of a superpower when it comes to that and and allowing... You know, whether it's a, a native person of, of a tribe or whatever it is, allowing, empowering them to be, you know, part of your team versus trying to, to kind of step into a, an area and say you're in charge now.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of egos out there. You know, I'm mean, seeing the private security industry around the world. I mean, I touched on it before is that these companies think that they can come in and do it. You can't do it. No one has better knowledge than, than the locals. And as you said, there, with the caretakers. They have a lot of, lot of knowledge. But one of the ethos of the special forces is actually humility. Um, and that's one thing we do, we do really well. But, but I, think, I think everyone brings something to the table. You shouldn't just disregard them. Everyone has experience or, or sort of knowledge. So, you know, use that. You know, when I, uh, when, we, um, when I evacuated the Canadian embassy, the week before, the British embassy got shot at. At every checkpoint to Tunis, which was obviously worrying them. So I went out and I didn't speak to the guys with the weapons, the egos, I didn't speak to them. I actually spoke to the tribal elders um, who sort of run the area and I sat down with them and actually just told them who we are, what we were doing, when we were doing it, that we were no threat. And actually it was all about respect and communication. That's all they wanted and they never got that before because they've got these teams going in thinking they're bullying their way through. And actually, when we then went through, they actually escorted us through peacefully. There was no issues. So, yeah, I think, you know, if there are egos, you know, sort of stand back and sort of uh, address the issues. But I mean, everyone can be part of that team. It's not just us and them. And I think there is a lot of, there is a lot of that at the moment. You know, we're better than you guys. And it's like, I well, no, actually, if you all work together, you can achieve a lot more.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's a big message that should come out this last two years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we are recording
0: this on May 11th, so 5.11. This is four years to the day that you've completed your bike ride. But also, I'm wearing the shirt now. It's funny, we talked about it before we started recording. My first sponsor, my main sponsor is 5.11, who I've used for a long, long time, and they're an amazing company. I know you've kind of joined that family now, so talk to me about that
1: yeah so um yeah five eleven they're based down here the equipment I used when I was in the military my my chief instructor on my selection uh, special forces selection works for five eleven Europe middle east and Africa, so him and I have had a good relationship and maintained that but um but yeah i i love I love the their equipment i love their always be ready you know that's the motto i, I live by my bags are packed all the time i make sure I'm, I'm physically fit and mentally fit for for any sort of call so it's a great synergy it's a great brand and i'm excited to soon be moving forward with them so yeah all i say is watch this space
0: beautiful and then what about sas australia i see so many people that are beyond here are becoming part of that <laughs> whether it's stars or yourself so how did you get involved with that
1: so originally, I, I got involved with SAS UK right at the very beginning. So in 2015, I got a phone call from one of the, uh, the the team at Minnow Films, a guy called Andrew Slater. And he said, look, we're looking at doing this TV show. Your name keeps coming up. So he flew up to Aberdeen. Um, and it wasn't called SAS Who Dares Wins at that point. It was called Selection. And he said, look, this is what we're looking at doing. This is the concept. Um, you know, we're trying to find guys suitable for... For the role. Um, And I sort of then sort of explained, really gave him my ideas of how they could do the show. Um, I I said, Look, I've got a team of guys that that can assist. Um, And he said, Well, great. Would you mind being the chief instructor? I said, Yeah, it's fine. I said, But it needs to be cleared through the right departments. You can't just go film this. You know, for me, all I had to go off at that point was a show back in the 90s called SAS, you Toughen Up, which was horrendous. Um, So I had visions of that. And so I informed the um, the Special Forces. Um, I then rang Ant Middleton, Foxy, um, introduced them to Minnow Films. And then a week later, I was in Libya, and I got a a letter from the MOD telling me to step back from the show. So for me at the time, it wasn't the right timing for me because I was still doing a lot of those evacuations. Um, but, you know, for Ant and Foxy, it was great, you know, it gave them a career. And then I got approached again the following year for season two, and I just kept palming it back off. Um, but then obviously, since doing the bike ride, you then become a, a public figure, and then you've got the book. So that sort of anonymity has is, is now gone. So when I got the phone call for SAS Australia, I was in a better position to, to this time agree.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, it seems a great show. And like I said, so many people from Dan Pronk and you know, all kinds of, of uh, mm. you know, operators have been on here. Now, I want to get to the uh, the book. But one more thing you touched on, that I do want to kind of get your perspective on as well is Ukraine. So you mentioned mentioned how again, assisting getting some people out there. It was a, a kind of buzz conflict, I guess, for lack of a better word for a mm. little while. Totally removing that through your perspective. Talk to me about that whole situation.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I would generally say I was caught out because a lot of people were asking me right at the beginning when when Putin was lining up his troops on the border, or oh, do you think he's going to do anything? And I actually, I didn't think he was going to do anything. I just thought, well, he's actually doing nothing wrong. You know, he's just moving his troops within his thing. So I was surprised, more surprised than anyone, when he actually then did invade uh, Ukraine. You know, for me, it was a bit, the timing of it as well, because we was still doing a lot in the Afghanistan you know, and it, it, it saddens to say it's what's trending all of a sudden all these groups that were helping Afghanistan have all now just popped up in Poland and Ukraine it's like, has everyone forgotten about Afghanistan and now we're seeing today you know that the women are having to cover up and it's starting to go back to the, uh, to the old ways um, so but from Putin's perspective you know he's, he's always showing his cards when it comes to NATO he doesn't want NATO knocking on the door um, and things like that I think I think we've let down Ukraine. You know, Ukraine four years ago got rid of their nuclear weapons and were told that it would be protected by the West. Well, that hasn't happened. Um, The UN was formed on the back end of the Second World War, so there wasn't any sort of genocide and crisis. You know, what's the point in having the UN if they're not going to action? So there's a a lot of questions at the moment. People are supposed to be doing jobs and they're not doing jobs. So... But from a private security perspective, you know, one of the good things about private security compared to military is that we're not governed by certain um, governing bodies, so we can actually get into places and, and help where, where need be. So, uh, yeah, we've got a team on the ground at the moment, sort of a system where we can, with, with the non-lethal stuff, the body armors, the helmets,
0: the medical equipment,
1: the MREs and, and the food and things like that, while the rest of will sort of work out what's What's going to be happening? Um, I think Putin has been, you know, I think mean he's just sacked 150 top, top generals because he's probably been misinformed as well. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting situation. I, I had a conversation with a friend the other week about it seems quite far away being in the US because it's not affecting us. But as soon as it starts affecting the US, then that's when they get involved. Um, you know, and we're already seeing the gas prices go up. So it'll be interesting to see when when the US do get involved. But um yeah, interesting for other countries when they've been promised the support of the Western world and see that they don't really get it.
0: Yeah, that was it was just interesting watching because it was kind of like conflict flavor of the month, and like you said, Afghanistan was still going through it. I mean, Syria and all these other areas that were still yeah. experiencing yeah. exactly the same kind of thing, and that wasn't sexy, so it didn't get any airtime. Yeah. And then they also, as we, as I talked about, with the whole demonizing an entire country, Russia became the enemy and russia is a very big country full of amazing people that has uh, a specific group of people that are invading a country so you know that kind of create the new boogeyman was like immediately in place and everyone was team ukraine and no one was like well hey what about the russian people that don't want anything to do with this
1: yeah no it's it's that uh, as we touched on that ignorance as well is that you know just because of certain individuals you tarnish a whole whole community or a whole uh, country you know it's like it's like the Middle East. Everyone, they're all tarnished with one brush. When in fact, it's only a very, very small minority that are bad. And that's no different from the Western world. <laughs> You've got a very, very small minority that are bad. But um, yeah, I don't think media help matters.
0: Absolutely not. Well, I want to get to your book. So talk to me about what made you write Relentless and then where can people find it?
1: Yeah, so, uh, so Relentless, when I finished the bike ride, I didn't see any, I did it so I wasn't, you know, smuggling people across borders. You know, it was, it was a bit of a filler. You know, I didn't see a career in guest speaking or TV, and, and especially not a book. So, when I got the opportunity to, to to write it, you know, I thought perfect, perfect story. I was very conscious again. You know, was protecting that special forces community. So, the book is 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 my life. Um, it's almost in three phases. The first phase is is my childhood in the military, and we sort of stop special forces. Uh, the middle phase is is the private security industry. That's you know there's the more exciting stories in there than I was in the special forces. Um, I mean it then leads perfectly onto onto the bike ride. Uh, the book at a moment um, is available on Amazon and Audible. Um, in a moment, but we're just about to do a, a rebrand and relaunch it in the in the US as well. We've Americanized the book. We've got some big names to endorse it: Admiral McRaven, Jocko Willink. Because um, no one's heard of Sir Randolph Fines or Levison Wood over here, so we sort of sort of changed it for the um, for the for the for, uh, for the US. So that that will be launching in uh, Q3 this year.
0: Yeah, well, I was impressed. Rannal Fines is a pretty amazing name to have endorse your book.
1: Oh, yeah, it's a great it's a great name to endorse your book. But then so is Admiral McRaven. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then speaking of books, the first of the closing questions, are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated.
1: Yeah, I, I sort of joke that I don't read many books. I've probably read two books and one of them is my own, unholdable. but the um, one of the books I did read when I was in uh, in an OP in the kosovo Serbian border, um, and it's purely because we're out of board, it was called The Long Walk, Um and it's a great book. It's a true story about some um, Polish officers who were captured by the Russians and um, sent to Siberia. But they had to build their own training camp, um, their own, sorry, prison war camp. And these guys ended up escaping. But rather than taking the shorter route to Mongolia, they then went back down south thousands of miles and crossed the, uh, the Himalayas into India. So it's a great story on physical endurance um, within the military so that, that's one book uh, i i really recommend i've just imagine
0: if you had to make your own camp that you'd be like, oh i need these trap doors and we don't need locks on the doors <laughs> or you,
1: yeah, you, no, you could design it the way <laughs> of, yeah hundreds of thousands got on a train to siberia and they're all chained together and walked north for weeks, you know, a thousand miles, and obviously people were dying along the way. And then when they got there, they had to then build the camp. But the, um, the author of the book, uh, Polish officer, very intelligent, you know, he ended up befriending the commanding officer and his wife, ended up being almost like a caretaker in, in their home. And so he was, you know, he was taking little things that would help his escape and managed to get a couple of other guys to do it with him. But obviously, the Russians would assume they're going to take the shortest route to Mongolia, and they didn't. They just decided to go back the way they came.
0: Amazing. Well, I haven't heard that book before, so thank you. My pleasure. Well, next question. Is there a movie and or a documentary that you love?
1: Oh, um, yeah, me and my wife, we don't, you know, we don't watch much TV, but we do like to watch um, a few movies. I think for me, one of my favorite movies was Last of the Mohicans, but recently I liked Warrior, uh, with Tom Hardy, um, always a fan of Rocky, <laughs> always, a, always a fan of the uh, the underdog. Um, so any sort of any sort of movies, movies like that. Um, Black Hawk Down was a good one for me in the fact that you know we talk about Hollywood and glorifying glorifying war. That was probably one of the most accurate movies to actually what happened on the ground. Um, so yeah, that, that was it. And I saw a change actually in in war movies from that. It wasn't all about victory. It was all about what were the lessons
0: learned. Yeah, I've had several of the real men from that that particular conflict, and yeah, it's amazing hearing from different perspectives. From Mike Duran, who was a helicopter pilot, to Matt Eversman. So yeah, very powerful.
1: Yeah, very powerful.
0: All right. Well, then the next question. Speaking of amazing humans, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Ooh, probably my wife. You know, because I'd I'd say my wife actually, because you know, when I left the military, we talk about my identity crisis, my mental health. You know, the military is very good at you know, like your mother and your father, probably like the, the blue lights. You know, they, they they clothe you, they feed you, they pay you on time. They almost take that responsibility as, you, as your parents. And so for me, um, if it wasn't my wife, did that for me, um, and she sort of manages everything behind the scenes and actually she would give you a more accurate story of my mental health at the time than mine because uh, she would have seen those short fuses, those, those bursts. But then rather than sort of reacting that, what can I do to to help it? You know, it was her idea to do the bike ride. <laughs> it is like, okay. So I, as, as I joke, there could have been a shorter bike ride, but she clearly chose the longest route. i say she wanted me out of the house. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, something that, that, that I say as well is that, you know, when you're, you know, in an SBS unit, or if you're, you know, part of a, a fire station, we're horrible bar- barometers of how we're doing because we're all experiencing the same thing and we're all kind of breaking down the same way. So our family, firstly, families are the unsung heroes of our professions too, oh, but yeah. also they're they're a great person to ask. You tell me, how am I doing?
1: Yeah, no, no, definitely, and and I say, especially in the world I'm now with, with, with TV and things, that you see the guys, you see your stars, you see your deans and, you know, and things like that. But actually, you speak to some of the best of them, like, like Jocko Willing, for example, his wife Helen runs everything, but Jocko's the face, you know, and it's no different anyone in the military or the blue light. You know, you're at the forefront, but it's actually there, the glue behind you, keeping things running smooth. Because if that then fell behind you, then you'd, you'd suffer even more.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Beautiful. Well, thank you. So, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you: What do you do to decompress?
1: Little physical activity for me. My wife knows if I get snappy or angry; she just tells me to go in the garage and, and, and crack some fizz. So, um, but since moving to uh, America, we, me, and my wife, chat about this the other day. We we didn't do. we were so fixated on business and one of the achieve things. We actually didn't really address what was going on around us. So for now, decompress and we spend, make sure we do a lot more quality family time. You know, we'll go to the beach, we'll do some stuff with the kids. Cause I, I, I'm shocked how quick they're growing.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. My, my, my little boy's almost 15 and he's like almost as tall as me. He's got a deep voice, keeps talking about his pubes, all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, you were a baby. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> uh, mine's five.
1: And he's already talking about his. So that, worries me? <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right so for everyone listening where are the best places online to find you um
1: uh, for me i'm on all the social media platforms except tiktok um so it's at dean's sbs on twitter although i'm not really that active on that but instagram and facebook is uh
0: beautiful well dean i just want to say thank you so much um you know again it it's i think it's amazing how a lot of the special forces special operations community are feeling comfortable opening up now because when you as you said when you get a role family member or you get a SWAT team member or a firefighter or a SBS you know operator talking about mental health talking about overcoming injury whatever it is that kind of kicks against that facade that we've had for so long of masculinity like oh boys don't cry and all that bullshit that we were raised with So, you know, I'm so glad that that you wrote a book, that you were out there on your bike and that you came on the podcast today because it's a voice that we need to hear. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today.
1: No, thank you for having me. Appreciate it.